0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our traditional Friday morning series. Uh, it's been a year since the governor declared the pandemic officially, uh, I guess, open. I don't know if that's the right word in Connecticut. And, uh, and Dr. Shriver was at that meeting with the governor. Uh, he came. Actually, I think we, we, we had to uh, grab a coat from someone, a white coat, I think from Dara Tynan. I can't remember who it was from. Um, but he was at the, at the press conference a year ago. It just seems like an eternity and things have changed so dramatically. I think John will show you the numbers today uh, with, with some good news of where we're going, but certainly this has been a very, very very difficult time for, for everyone, certainly for all of us and, and for all of you. So thank you for hanging in there and thank you for joining us. I think this has been a very good series. We've gotten a lot of very positive feedback from most of you, if not all of you, uh, but we wanna make sure we understand what are your needs. And one of those things that we'll ask about today, uh, specifically with our colleagues that are part of NUVANCE uh, and uh, Dr. Raul Arguello, who, who runs the uh, yearly symposium, the annual joint pediatric symposium, so we'll ask for some feedback between John's presentation and Dr. Himes' presentation, which will be uh, sometime around probably 8.20. So hang in there. We'll, we'll do a survey for you. Please answer uh, what you feel is the correct answer, and then we hopefully we will have a uh, the, the right joint symposium for, for all of you. But uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask John, who's here today, to begin the presentation, and then we'll pass it on to Dr. Himes to talk about SARS-CoV and pediatric IVD. Uh,
1: thank you, Juan. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning, Connecticut, and uh, good morning uh, to all of you in other states of New England. Uh, there's a lot going on with COVID. It has been a year, and it's my fervent hope that next year at this time, you will not see me on Friday giving COVID updates. Um, but uh, for now, we will continue because there is a lot going on and I, I want to share it with you. Um, the marathon to vaccinate is where we are right now. I think um, it's a good, better place to be than we were previously. Uh, there's a lull in the world right now. This is average new cases per day um, across the world. Now, you can see um, the United States unfortunately dominated the world in numbers of new cases for many months. Uh, We've gone down quite a bit. Um, The UK and the European Union, I think, have accurate figures and uh, also had dramatic peaks in the winter, and these are all coming down. Now, I have no idea, you really don't know The numbers in Brazil and Russia and other countries, we don't know whether they're accurate or not, but I think the UK, Europe and the United States are accurate figures and the pandemic is ebbing in uh, huge parts of the world. This is good news for us and it's an opportunity for us to immunize and get our hands around this pandemic finally. Now the United States shows deep declines in cases. This is great news, Um, uh, I think it reflects a lot of hard work. It reflects a lot of people who were infected and who are not uh, now immune, at least temporarily, and a lot of immunizations going on. So I think it's multifactorial. Uh, but this is very good news. And again, this is an opportunity uh, for us to immunize, 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 and get our arms around this. There are lots of potential causes for resurgence. And again, now is the time to act. And so I, I'm, uh, I, I think that we're moving in the right direction. Um, If you go to our deaths in the United States, um, sadly, we've reached the half million point. I I just find that an unfathomable number. Um, And we've said this before over the last year, each one of those people was an individual with a family and ambitions and goals and kids, grandkids, whatever. And uh, it's a lot of people to lose in 12 months. That said, the death rates declining rapidly. It's not where it needs to be yet, but it's come down quite a bit And I think if we continue to get our arms around this, we will have a a much lower death rate in the coming months. We're not there yet. And the the 12 month toll is uh, absolutely unfathomable. It's really um, one of the sadder events in United States history, I think. Connecticut's getting better. Um, We've gone down enormously in the last couple of months, but I wanna point out, we still have hundreds of new cases every day. So we are not where we need to be yet. And um, the temptation is, is I was drove in and the sun is bright and it's, you can tell it's spring, you know, and you want to tear the mask off and you want to go into the big Y or whatever. Take a deep breath, maintain all your precautions because we still have hundreds of new cases a day and there's a lot of community spread. It's much better, but we still have work to do. And here you can see this changed actually. This started, this was going down all week and I, te- I checked yesterday and it stabilized. Yeah, we went from, we're hovering around between two and 3% test positivity. So we're, we, I'd love it to be 1% or less. And I'd like all of these numbers to be 10 new cases per 100,000 or less. So you can see huge improvements, but we are not there yet. So um, there's still significant community spread. Keep up your precautions. And unfortunately, that's the message we have to give to our patients and our parents uh, for now. Um, It's going to get better, but now is not the time to to, um, give up the precautions. We're not there yet. Now, interestingly, and this is very important, and it's one of the reasons the governor rolled out this age-based immunization strategy, Connecticut COVID is really concentrated now in the younger age groups. The elderly have now been immunized in this state, 75 and above a lot have been immunized. And you can see we are really having an outbreak among 20 to 50 years old is where the dominant number of cases are in Connecticut. Um, And so we, we, you know, again, we have to watch that and we need to understand why the state's strategy was to move through the ages and break the back of this transmission. I, I do understand that. The wild card, All, it's in the news every night. They interviewed the Pfizer CEO yesterday on NBC uh, Nightly News. Lester Holt immunized him. He said they're already making the, the uh, new RNA sequence that will cover the South African strain. They, they're cooking in the lab. It's going to be ready to go, and they're probably going to need to. This is wild underreporting, but it's what the CDC reported a day or so ago. B117 is the U.K. strain, a couple of thousand cases. basically in every state. Um, 1351 is the South African strain. It's spreading in the United States. And to me, that is the more worrisome spread. And the Brazilian strain for now, P1, seems to be relatively limited as far as we know. Remember, we are not doing very intensive surveying genetically of, of all of the strains across the country. It's very spotty. And this is the state's maps for the UK variant. Uh, You can see it's all over the United States, but particularly dominant in Florida, Michigan, and California now. So this is going to become the dominant strain across the United States. And luckily, so far, the vaccines may have a little bit reduced in vitro activity, a little bit reduction in neutralizing antibody titer, but they seem to work against the United Kingdom strain. So, you know, I think everyone can take a little bit of a deep breath on that, um, but the other strains emerging may be more problematic. Now, why is the UK strain more infectious? This was a disturbing paper. Now, it's not a paper. So this is, this is one of the problems with posting um, unpeer-reviewed data as a paper on, online, and then it goes to peer review. The trouble is the media picks this up and they run with it. Well, This was of seven patients, okay? And they looked at mean peak RNA copies and of people infected with the UK strain versus the regular strain. The regular strain is the blue and the UK strain is the pink red. And what they found was that there was a longer duration during acute infection of excreting what probably replicative positive RNA. So in other words, people harbored infection longer if they had the UK strain. The paper hypothesizes that's why it's more infectious because people are thinking they're no longer infectious. They didn't quarantine long enough. Now look, this is seven patients. Um, I do not believe this is the final data on this, but it's intriguing and makes you worry if the UK strain took over and this bears out that we might have to have a little bit longer quarantine to guarantee that we would no longer be infectious. But preliminary data seven patients, not peer-reviewed. This was on the nightly news, okay? So, you know, I think if a patient asks me about it, I'll say it's in seven patients, take a deep breath. I don't know if it's true or not. The race to vaccinate in the United States is getting better daily. This is yesterday's data. 88 million doses delivered, 66 million doses administered in the United States, 13% of our population have gotten one dose, Uh, and so, you know, we're getting there. Only 6% have gotten two doses, but, you know, we are pushing this out. I I think it is accelerating. The weather shut down. A lot of the trucks moving the vaccine back and forth for a week, but I think we're bouncing back, and if we keep pushing at this rate, that curve I showed you where July to September we reach herd immunity could be achieved, but we're going to need to accelerate this just a bit. And these are the top states for COVID-19 immunization. You can see Connecticut, dark blue on the far right. We are up there and the Dakotas have done well. West Virginia, New Mexico, and Alaska. Uh, those are the top states and we are in the top tier. So again, uh, kudos to Connecticut, the DPH, the governor, everyone who I think laid out a very efficient uh, move forward. Uh, certainly across the border, where I live in Massachusetts. It's not quite as efficient, shall we say. How did West Virginia do it? Um, this is fascinating. And, and they went, they had independent pharmacies who actually, I think, were very burned by the opiate epidemic and, and had fallen in the public eye. And they all rolled up their sleeves and they, they've been going door to door. And the pharmacists have been, those are, that's an independent pharmacy owner on the left. They're collating paperwork of people who were immunized. That's a pharmacy student on the right. They don't have enough doctors in West Virginia. So they've really gone out in all the rural areas and pushed this vaccine quite successfully because these are peers, hey, I run the local pharmacy, let me tell you why. And they know each other and it's really worked well. And I think um, this could be a model for us to get into our cities, go neighborhood to neighborhood and get the, the underserved immunized. And I think what was done in rural areas can be done in city areas. And this is an opportunity for us to think about how we might modify our strategies across the country And get into our cities and immunize those who have not been immunized yet and in Alaska this was um, you know I've been getting uh, suggestions across the uh, across the um, purview of all the people listening and um, and uh, this was I I will uh, I'll say it honestly uh, these were uh, some female professionals who said you need to show some badass female medical teams doing their thing in Alaska I didn't put that word on the slide I know it was recorded I apologize But this is amazing. So these are all female medical teams in rural Alaska delivering vaccines by snowmobile and sled to Native American communities highly successfully. It's a remarkable achievement. Alaska is way ahead of us um, in immunization across the the country. And this is just getting out in the communities. And and, uh, they probably don't need refrigeration, right? You probably just put it in the back of the sled, It stays cold. And then they get out to these communities. So it's an amazing achievement. And West Virginia and Alaska are the two best states. Getting out in their communities, we should be doing the same thing in our urban areas as they're doing in the rural areas. Now let's get some uh, new data. This is a paper, a preprint uh, from the University of Washington. But this is actually more than seven. This is I think these are good data. And this shows that a single dose of the mRNA RNA vaccine in a person who was previously infected is more than enough to induce neutralizing antibody titer rise. And you can see in A and B, the low is their their post infection and then they get the booster dose and their antibody, the neutralizing antibody just shoots up. So in my view, I think where we're going to move is if you've been recently infected with COVID, you're not gonna need two doses of the RNA vaccines. You'll probably just need one booster dose. And that'll also do away with some of the more severe side effects we've been seeing in some previously infected, you've gotten two doses. So I, this is not an official recommendation yet, but I anticipate this will be, because I think it works, the data are strong, and will have less side effects than those who are previously infected. The J&J vaccine, I want to do a deep dive on this, and I want all of you to walk away from this talk understanding this vaccine. The J&J vaccine, Janssen, is an adenovirus 26 Uh, receptacle. It's non-replicating. It's got the DNA that is then transcribed to the RNA encoding the spike protein. In this study, they have 40,000 participants in a randomized placebo-controlled phase three clinical trials. They have another trial still going. It was 18 and older. Now, this is in multiple countries. And they found that the efficacy against moderate and severe COVID was 66% overall. The efficacy against severe and critical COVID ending up in the ICU was 76 to 85%. Pretty good for that. There were seven deaths in the placebo group, no deaths in the vaccine groups. And a lot of the data, some of the data is from South Africa and may have been skewed downwards. I'm going to show you that. The efficacy in the USA arm of the trial was 72%. Now, this is really important. I want to work through this because I think we're going to get a lot of questions from our patients. This vaccine is going to be, I'm almost sure, will be licensed this week or next week. Um, The data are posted online. and I just lifted this off the FDA website. So you can see on the top, I may even, I guess I don't have a pointer. Um, On the subgroups, United States, moderate to severe critical, where I have the arrow, there's a 72% reduction of efficacy. So so it's not bad. Um, It's not as good as the mRNA vaccines, which were 90s, 95%, but it's not bad. For severe critical in the United States, it was 85.9, 86% prevention of severe critical, pretty good. So, you know, one dose, it's a one dose vaccine, it has better convenience, and it's gonna prevent about 86% of Americans from ending up severely or critically ill. It's a pretty good vaccine. Here's where the clicker is. In South Africa, where the South African variant dominates, the efficacy was reduced to 64%, from, from moderate to severe, critical, and uh, to 81% keeping you out of you know severe, critical COVID. Not as good, it's not terrible, but it's not as good. And we need to be watch this very carefully because if the South African strain spreads in the United States, this vaccine might have reduced efficacy. Not right now, but it may. We're gonna have to watch that closely. Same findings in Brazil with the Brazilian strain dominating reduced efficacy of this vaccine, uh, but not bad for severe critical. So again, we'll have to watch this closely. Um, all of you, this will be posted. It's worth looking at so we can answer questions from our patients about this vaccine. Now, what were the side effects of the j adenovirus vector vaccine? Very similar to the mRNA vaccines. Injection site pain, pretty common. Headaches, myalgia, uh, there were some urticarian vaccine recipients uh, but you know out of thousands and thousands only five and uh, older people had less side effects there was a small number of um, vaccine recipients more than placebo who reported tinnitus post-immunization it's unclear if it's causal and that's being watched the other clicker is remember this is a human adenovirus 26 the uk vaccine is a chimp adenovirus This is a non-replicative human adenovirus 26. And there's a question, will repeated doses be effective? Because you're gonna make antibodies to the adenovirus 26. And will that prevent this vaccine from being effective for multiple boosters? We do not know the answer to that. And it's something, again, that will have to be watched as we move forward. And the J&J vaccine is much easier to store. It's it's packed in glass files. It's kept at negative 20 for long-term. And then when you're moving to immunize people, you can keep it between two and eight degrees sonograde for three months. Uh, And then when you thought it, it can stay between two and eight degrees for six hours in the fridge. So this is gonna be much, it's a single dose. This will be much easier to push out in trucks, in community immunizations and things like that. So there are good advantages to this vaccine, even though its efficacy is not the same as the mRNA vaccines. What's new with SARS-CoV-2 in other areas? Be careful at the gym. These are CDC data just posted this week. In a, an Atlanta gym, 81 attendees of an indoor high-intensity fitness class during one week, 68% got COVID. It was one super spreader. They had bad ventilation. Everyone's sweating. You know, no one's wearing a mask when you're sweating like that. And, and um, so I, I think this should be a warning. We're not ready yet to do this wear a mask when you exercise indoors, physically distance, be in a small class and have better ventilations in the gym. And personally, I I just, I'm sorry for gym owners. I apologize in advance. These data need to be attended to. So, so this is the issue. And I think as it gets warmer, you could open the windows, have less people. You might be able to get by, but right now there's big outbreaks happening in gyms. The other really important data that the CDC presented, there was some controversy about this, but I think these are good data. They found there were clusters of SARS-CoV-2 infection among elementary school educators and students in a school district in Georgia last month. And what they found was that it was in-person learning, but there was spread around the educators um, and they actually spread it from themselves to kids. the CDC danced on this, but it really suggests that teachers should be among the early people vaccinated and we should just interrupt this transmission. It makes sense to me. Vaccinate the teachers, offer to them. You know, I, I, to me, makes common sense. These data back up that common sense policy. It's variable in every state. Some states are doing it, some aren't. In my opinion, I'm hoping that we come out with a national policy, just immunize, offer immunization to teachers, and we will interrupt spread. We can get those schools open like we need to in my opinion. I'm not speaking for the CDC or DPH on that suggestion, so that's just my opinion. Now, another important one, we're all worried about pregnancy. The the vaccine companies have started immunizing pregnant women volunteers. We're going to get those data three or four months. These are nice data in that it shows that women who do unfortunately get COVID-19 while they're pregnant. IgG against COVID, neutralizing antibody goes uh, to the fetus across the placenta. So the IgG crosses and the fetus is per, uh, protected. So the newborn baby will be protected from COVID. And it's possible while we're seeing babies born, it's okay to breastfeed. They don't seem to get sick. It's possibly the antibodies have crossed the placenta and they are protected. So stay tuned on this. But these, this, is I think it, you would expect that to happen. But this documents that women who are infected in pregnancy Will give immunity to their babies in utero, and this is good news. Anti-vaccine disinformation—I I love going on Infowars, uh, but there's a lot of it. You can go on other sites. This is; these are two top stories yesterday. COVID-19 vaccine causes neurologic disorders. I think they were focusing on the six cases of Bell's palsy out of you know forty-two thousand people or whatever. I don't know. I have tr- I had trouble finishing it. Um, and then a mother died after getting the vaccine. Um, okay. Uh, you know, and this is constant and the, the goal here is to instill doubt. This is deliberate. Uh, it's malicious. And then of course, there's a whole separate section where you can buy all the various vitamin additives that will prevent COVID for a profit for the individual running this website. It's very transparent. However, People look at this stuff and it generates fear. um, And I think it's important that we lay out the facts. There's a lot of great slides and videos and all sorts of things we can do now to share with people showing that the facts show this is just not correct. The vaccines have now been given to millions of Americans uh, safely and it's amazingly effective, the RNA vaccines. You can look at the Israeli data for that. That that pandemic is under control in Israel now as they have immunized 30, 40% of the population okay we're moving from movie metaphors we're going to retire the good the bad and the ugly that's clint eastwood holding up the t-shirt commemorating last year's 54th anniversary of the good the bad the ugly perhaps it's time to put that to rest and we're going to move to a foreign film oscar winner from 1991 called the journey of hope it's a great movie uh highly recommend it um and uh That's where we are right now. We're in the journey of hope. It's very visible. Um, We have hard work to do still. This isn't just gonna fall in our lap. Maintain precautions, speak truth, and immunize as many as we can. And and I think we will get to where we need to go by the summer and fall of this year. So with that, I'm, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Himes Follow me, I I, I know everyone's familiar with that name in New England, but Jeff is probably among the very best pediatric gastroenterologists in the United States and probably the world. And it's certainly my privilege uh, to have him speak next. So thank you, Juan.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, John, I really greatly appreciate it. And I love that uh, journey of hope. That's certainly the way where we are right now, Uh, absolutely. Uh, Before Jeff uh, speaks to you, uh, today, we do have this survey that I, I'd like for you to participate on. And again, remember, our, our vents partners and, at Connecticut Children's, our office of CME, host, uh, generally host an annual joint symposium with, with excellent speakers, been very well attended through the years. And uh, we're trying to figure out what to do this year. And so we have a, uh, we have a survey. We're, we're going to begin with the first question. First one is, how long do you feel comfortable sitting for a virtual symposium? A, 1.5 hours, B, 2.5, C, 3.5. So go ahead and and answer that question, please. Ready? Tell me when, Steve. Okay, we'll go to the, sec- the second question, uh, frequency of the symposium, and, then, and the, the, the answers are annually, biannually, or quarterly. All right, the third question would be preferred day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. I guess we left Sunday out, and I guess that's Okay. and then the last question is preferred time of day 8 to 11 12 to 3 4 to 7 and in the chat please uh, go ahead and list topics of interest and we will make note of those so greatly appreciated this is very helpful to our CME office and our new west partners and we'll get back to our our seminar. So, uh, Jeff, I'm gonna go ahead and pass this on to you. I think you're speaking about constipation, but I wasn't sure. So go ahead, Jeff. You muted? Jeff, I think you're muted.
2: I'm off mute, I'm just trying to get the video to start.
0: All right, hang on, we're working on it.
2: Okay, there we go. We good?
0: Yeah, we can see you in your library now.
2: Exactly. Liz, I'm ready to start whenever you want, put the first slide up.
0: One second. There you go.
2: There we go. So um, it is a pleasure to be here. I I do wanna first thank Juan and John uh, and the team for their incredible work over the last year. I mean, I look forward to these meetings. I've learned so much every week and was pleased to be able to uh, speak to you this morning about a couple of interesting things, next slide. So this is the uh, GI endoscopy team at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in early March of 2020. We were prepared for uh, a busy day. Um, Basically what we wore were our gowns and gloves uh, and we had a very uneventful and fun day. Unfortunately, next slide. This is what the team looked like about three days after that. There was incredible concern, and next slide. And we were freaking out uh, because for us, performing endoscopy was a very, very high risk procedure. Just think about what we're doing for every upper endoscopy that we performed. we're in some, next to someone's upper airway. So it really changed a lot of things, but fortunately the GI community was able to pivot very quickly and start to learn very quickly. um, And we're now pretty much back to speed. Next slide. So all because of this SARS-CoV-2, and I have been amazed, and I'm sure we've heard this before, that a hundred million of these viral particles will fit on the head of a pen and the infectious dose is probably 300 to 500. So it is not at all a mystery why we have this unbelievable pandemic and why all of us as providers are at risk. Next slide. So why are we in the the GI field particularly concerned with this as well? Well, you've heard before during these lectures about the SARS-CoV-2 virus attaches to the ACE2 receptor in the body. And this is a beautiful cartoon from science from last April, showing really the ubiquity of the SARS-CoV-2 ACE receptors, certainly in the respiratory system, in blood vessels. Next slide. And in the gastrointestinal system as well. And if you look at the top panels, those top three rows, Those are immunofluorescent stains of ACE receptors, ACE2 receptors in the GI tract. So your esophagus is okay, stomach not so great, duodenum and rectum, there certainly are plenty of receptors there. Next slide. And again, these are further stains that people have done at different uh, spots along the GI tract. And what we do know is that inflammation is very interesting. It seems to downregulate the ACE2 receptor in the ileum and up- upregulate it in the colon. So there's region specificity, and anyone with a gastrointestinal inflammatory condition, therefore, may have potentially increased risk from even a small inoculum of virus which gets into the gastrointestinal system. Next slide. And this is just another uh, sort of picture of where the ACE2 receptor is in the gut. It's more in the crypt epithelium than in the surface epithelium. Next slide. So, liver disease is seen probably not because the virus attaches to hepatocytes, but probably the liver is an innocent bystander during the course of the hyperimmune response to the virus as well as the drugs that we give to fight the virus itself. Next slide. So some of the early reports on GI manifestations of SARS-CoV-2, GI manifestations are incredibly common. Huge range, up to 75%, anorexia and diarrhea, the most common, along with nausea, abdominal pain and vomiting. There are some epidemiologic data that suggest that GI symptoms may be associated with more severe respiratory disease. And fecal RNA can be found very early in the course of infection and can be found later than a month after your PCR becomes negative. However, we do not know whether that has any infectious implications at all. You can find viral RNA, but it's not clear what that means. And again, for those of us who are doing colonoscopies, that has obviously potential importance. Next slide. So how does SARS-CoV-2 cause diarrhea? Very interesting. At the end of the day, we don't know for sure, but we know that that ACE2 receptor that I've been talking about actually participates in protein digestion. It's important uh, in cleaving the carboxyterminal terminal peptide. It forms a complex with something called BOT1 in the surface epithelium there, and it probably interfo- interferes with the absorption of tryptophan. There's also some evidence that viral infection can lead to a dysbiosis in your gut, and these things together may be partly associated with why someone gets GI symptoms. Next slide. What about SARS-CoV-2 mimicking IBD? So this is something that the IBD doctors have had to learn relatively quickly. And in fact, at Connecticut Children's, we've had several patients admitted to the floor with an IBD-like illness, and we were consulted, is this IBD? or could this be SARS? Next slide. So there also you've heard from Juan and others about uh, MISI, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which very, very commonly presents with gastrointestinal symptoms, abdominal pain being uh, amongst the most common, but one can see melanoma, one can see hematemesis. And what's, what's interesting about these patients are they're too sick to have IBD as a general rule. And most of the time when kids, even kids with severe IBD present, they do not have high spiking fevers unless they've had an intra-abdominal catastrophe such as an abscess. However, if there's not a super high fever and these kids are sick and acute phase reactants are elevated, then it's not surprising that one may in fact confuse them with acute onset IBD. And remember, mis often occurs weeks after someone may have had mild uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Next slide. And this is a very interesting uh, MRE um, of a patient who presented with an IBD-like picture who turned out to have COVID, who actually had thickening and edema of the terminal ileum really pretty much indistinguishable from someone who had acute terminal ileitis. So you can see where the confusion is, but it's very important early on to recognize that this is not IBD. We'll come back to this in a couple of moments. Next slide. So there was a worldwide wonderful effort put together by some associates in North Carolina and New York who very rapidly started a worldwide database looking at patients with IBD who got SARS-CoV-2 infection, coronavirus. And not unexpectedly, risk factors were older age, obesity, and other comorbidities. But I focused here for you on outcomes of patients under the age of 30. And these were data as, oh, about a month or so ago. So about 1,500 patients, and you can see the overwhelming majority of them were managed as outpatients, a very small number were hospitalized, a smaller number went into the ICU, and there was one a mortality amongst the 1,500 patients. So even when our patients get sick, probably because they're young, and despite their immunomodulators, they actually do quite well. Next slide. So this is how I felt again in March. What was I going to do with the 600 kids that we have with IBD on very intense immunosuppression? And you can imagine our phones were ringing off the hook. And honestly, we truly didn't know. However, we have a lot of experience now over the course of the year and there are some take-home messages. Next slide. Uh, First, Cool your jets. Uh, We don't need to be as worried as we were before. Next slide. In someone who is doing well on their therapy with IBD, we do not stop what we're doing. One thing we do try to do is minimize or eliminate prednisone if we possibly can. We've had about 40 or 50 known cases now of PCR documented, infection in our patients. We have not had one patient admitted to the hospital with the exception of one of our patients who's a nurse, who's had a splenectomy, who we actually gave monoclonal antibody to and she did quite well. So if someone, however, has PCR positive and they're ill, we will pause their medications. We're not stopping, but we'll, we will pause. Um, We certainly are aware of comorbidities, and some of our patients have diabetes, obesity, a variety of other things that we need to be uh, concerned with. The biggest issue is we've had to restrict people from coming to our infusion center for a period of time until they're no longer an issue with respect to being infectious. Next slide. A couple of very interesting observations that I would share with you in case you know, your patients have seen these and ask you, next slide. Vitamin D and COVID. There are some very interesting data, mostly from Italy on vitamin D insufficiency as a potential issue in people who get COVID and who do more poorly. And in fact, there are a number of studies now which look at and trying to control for other factors vitamin D levels at the time of admission. Next slide. Why might vitamin D important? The important it plays an essential role in our immune system, and it really has important anti-inflammatory capability. And it's a long mechanism, and I'm, I'm happy to send a reference to you if you want to read more. Next slide. These are some very dramatic data, and I believe these were uh, from Italy, looking at cumulative survival of patients admitted to the hospital as a function of their vitamin D level. Now, vitamin D level less than 10, that's pretty low. Do we see that in Connecticut? We do. More often people are in the teens, but you can see a dramatic, dramatic difference. And I have to tell you, I have used this and leveraged this to get all my patients with IBD to finally take their vitamin D. And maybe after all these years, they're listening to me. Next slide. What about PPIs and COVID? There has actually been a lot of information published on this of more severe clinical outcomes in individuals who develop COVID who've been on PPIs. Not with respect to more likely to get COVID, but perhaps with likelihood of developing a worse outcome. Next slide. And these are some data. Uh, with what's called an adjusted odds ratio. Um, So on the top bar, tested positive for covid 2 um, doesn't seem to make a very big difference with respect to mild disease. However, if you look for more severe endpoints, which are in the middle and the bottom grouping of uh, um, of the data there, which means admission to the ICU, invasive ventilation, or on the bottom death, you can see a way shift to the right for adjusted odds ratio in people who are on PPIs at that time. Not old use, but current use. So we have tried to cut back on our PPI use in people who have other comorbidities. Next slide. Last thing I just want to talk about very briefly is famotidine. So some of you may have heard early in the course of the pandemic that there were were data on uh, famotidine being actually a a therapy for this. Um, And we, as gastroenterologists, were not able to prescribe famotidine because everybody was buying famotidine to treat themselves. But actually interesting, there were data that were very interesting, um, small amounts, Uh, suggesting, again, that people did better if they were on Fomodidine at the time uh, that they got infected. And there was a randomized controlled trial whether to see if it could improve outcome. I don't have any follow-up on that. Next slide. So there was an open label study on people who actually got COVID 80 milligram TID and they all improve within 24 hours. Um, I'm not saying to do it. Uh, I'm not saying we should relabel Pepsid as Pepsid, very complete, but it was very interesting, this dissociation between the PPIs and the famotidine, the mechanism is not clear. Next slide. So all of you have seen these faces over and over and over again over the last year. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Hotez, who uh, is a native of West Hartford, Dr. Osterholm, that's Juan's high school graduation picture and there's John, but I have to tell you the gastroenterologists have felt left out. Next slide. So why have we felt left out? Because nobody's asking us anything anymore, but interestingly enough, there are some Places where I think the gastroenterologists may actually have some experience that will be helpful for us moving forward. There is now an increasing literature in the rheumatology literature about the use of anti-TNF therapy as a uh, tr- potential treatment for people with severe COVID-2. There certainly are uncontrolled data in both IBD and rheumatic disease that anti-TNF does not make COVID worse. And there is a trial, and I actually think this is at Tufts, where people uh, were using infliximab in the ICU to treat patients who were quite, quite sick. Next slide. Uh, And I just, in the realm of anecdotal, this was a report from Mount Sinai in New York, some colleagues of mine, of of a 14-year-old boy, and I'll just, it's too lengthy, I'll just read it, a 14-year-old boy, had recently been diagnosed with Crohn's disease who actually then got got COVID and was quite ill. Uh, He did not have respiratory symptoms, but he had really a Misty-like situation. He had high fevers, he had rash, he had severe elevation of his acute phase reactants, and he was actually doing quite poorly. Um, And the clinicians there elected to give him a GI level dose of infliximab uh, and within hours, his fever, tachycardia and hypotension had all resolved. So I do think we, as like everything else, we learn from our other disciplines. Um, Next slide. Um, And it's never too late to call the gastroenterologist. So this was an interesting cartoon that I saw. Uh, You should have called me sooner. And if you can't see it, there's a picture of a mouse hole with a lounge chair and some other games to play uh, with the pest control. So I'll stop there, and we'd be happy to answer any questions along with Juan and John.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Really, greatly appreciate it, and we'll we'll be happy to put your picture up there with uh, with with the steam college <laughs> and infectious disease. <laughs> It's all bacteria in the gut anyway, so so we you know we're there. Um, all right, we have a, a lot of questions. We we had approximately 235 people that have joined, so a pretty pretty popular session, as you can see. And um, uh, let's begin, uh, and I'll just go back and forth between both of you. It, John, any data receiving the Pfizer booster if one initially received the Moderna vaccine? And a similar question, tell us about again reiterate the issue of COVID, and then one or two doses after covid disease
1: so we have no data about mixing and matching the vaccines the data just don't exist Um, i don't suggest it Um, and we don't really know the proprietary formulation differences Uh, i don't know that so uh, that we have no data i don't suggest um, starting pfizer ending with moderna stay with pfizer stay with moderna um, and for now uh, and I'm not sure the companies are generating those data. So we may end up having to stay in those silos depending on where we started our immunizations. I'm sorry, Juan, the next question was-
0: Just reiterate the issue of uh, acute COVID disease and then the and the vaccine. was a, I showed you a, a new data
1: on that, um, showing that individuals who had COVID in the last several months with one dose of the mRNA vaccine had a very, very robust booster response of neutralizing antibodies, quite strong. And I think, I believe we're going to, I will predict, we'll evolve to the recommendation that those who have been recently, previously infected, probably the last 90 days, will get one dose of an mRNA vaccine if those data are true. Now, they weren't peer-reviewed yet, but it was, was, I thought, very well-written paper. So stay tuned for that. Right now, we're still suggesting two doses after um, anyone with a history of COVID. Those are the CDC recommendations. We need to stay with that. I do think we may evolve to a single dose booster if you've had COVID in the last 90 days, in my opinion.
0: I agree with that, John. Uh, Jeff, uh, there's a question here about, uh, recently studies demonstrated risk of eosinophilic esophagitis in children with IBD. Can you comment?
2: Yeah, so um, again, really doesn't have too much to do with SARS-CoV-2. With respect to eosinophilic esophagitis and IBD, I actually do not think that there is a direct relationship I unfortunately think that they are two disorders that are not uncommon. Uh, have we seen kids who start with one who have the other? Uh, the answer is yes, but I do not really have the impression that it's any more than we would normally see. So I don't think there's a causal effect.
0: Thank you. Uh, John, how long and what follow-up is needed for a patient who may have, who, who had COVID with mild symptoms or or mild missy like symptoms?
1: Um, I'm sorry, the question is the,
0: All these patients, what is- Well, I, you know, following? I
1: think children who've had mild COVID and have normal physical exams um, really, in my opinion, are gonna end up being treated as kids who've had an illness and are, are, have gotten better and you're not gonna do much follow-up. I think when you get to moderate and severe COVID, it's when you get into some of the controversies about follow-up and when you begin sports, we actually have a, on our intranet, and I know Elizabeth will post it, we have a very nice pathway now of how to follow somebody with moderate or severe COVID in terms of screening by cardiology, when do you get an EKG, when do you not. So I'm going to refer you to that site, and we will post it shortly for you in terms of the follow-up there. Mild COVID with kids who don't have any lingering symptoms who've done well, um, I think uh, a normal physical exam will, will let you move on as if they're normal after that.
0: Yeah, and if they've had Missy, I think uh, you, you, that's a different issue, and we will be right. will be following those kids uh, in a long term study that we're currently uh, applying for funding through the NIH, and we'll hear more about that in the future.
1: I, I totally agree, John. Absolutely, I think at the moment we're going to follow Missy kids the way we follow Kawasaki kids. They're going to be in long term follow up. So um, I I totally agree with uh, Dr. Salazar, and that even though we don't have data yet because the disease is only a year old. Missy patients should be continued to be followed like Kawasaki kids for now. I'm looking at this mouse cartoon, I I have to, my son uh, literally yesterday texted me a picture of his car where mice had gotten into the engine compartment and chewed all the spark plugs. So we had to get a new wiring harness. It was really quite remarkable. And there are acorns everywhere. And they had a party just like this. They had the lounge chairs out, the spark plug wires in every direction. So I'm still laughing and looking at this cartoon.
0: Endoscopy. Okay. Uh, Jeff, this one's for you. And, uh, you you, uh, you know, we are following uh, over 500 uh, kids and, and young adults with IBD who get infusions. And many of them are on, you know, all these immunosuppressive therapies. Comment on your experience again. Have they done well? And, and uh, maybe comment on the antibody responses as much as we can at this point?
2: Sure, they have done remarkably well. I mean, so well to the point that I truly wonder whether the fact that many of these kids have an anti-TNF on board may have mitigated the hyperimmune response. Um, That's something that's extremely interesting to us as well, not suggesting at all it should be used prophylactically, so um, Juan and John and I have been involved in a study since last May where we are actually monitoring serologic response to SARS-CoV-2 in our infusion patients. Uh, we have found a number of patients who had no idea they had been infected. So i.e. were asymptomatic, who had serologic evidence of infection, bonafide. And we followed other kids who we knew were PCR positive, and they do mount a robust response. Um, we're, We're right now trying to determine whether that robust response includes adequate titer of neutralizing antibodies. And we hope to have those data within the next 30 to 60 days, but they've done well. One thing that we have done though, is if they're on high dose of prednisone, anybody is, we are doing our best to try to get that down as low as possible.
0: Thanks, Jeff, and, and I want to say that uh, one of Jeff's uh, GI fellows uh, submitted a poster for their national meeting uh, on, on this topic and actually has been accepted for an oral presentation. We'll share the link because those presentations will be available for, for anyone who's interested in, in listening to her, uh, her findings, so congratulations to her.
1: Jeff has differentiated between the biologicals, which really almost seem protective uh, to his point and steroids where we're trying very hard to, uh, we we do think that's a risk, and trying to modulate down the steroid use on these vulnerable patients. So I think that's a very important point uh, to get out there.
0: So John, in line with that, and this is for both you and and Jeff, uh, we we had a scenario, one of our colleagues who is currently a methotrexate for a a rheumatologic disorder, uh, she received two doses of one of the mRNA vaccines, and both her uh, titers to Uh, her spike protein titers are zero uh, in terms of antibodies. So any recommendations that you know of in terms of using, of of tapering off methotrexate or any biologicals before vaccination? And we don't, the data is not there yet, but what do you recommend?
1: There are no data on that. I I do think the general rule is to try to not use uh, any therapeutic during your immunization phase whether it's a non-steroidal. And so I think if you stop the methotrexate prior to immunization and for a multiple week after immunization, it would make the most sense because they are immunomodulatory and we do not know how they're going to affect um, your response to the mRNA vaccine and making spike protein and antibodies to spike protein. In this individual's case, we're not getting any detectable antibodies. Now that doesn't mean the individual is non-immune. There's possible T-cells that have been activated and there may be some memory there. We simply don't know, but it is suspicious that the methotrexate has inhibited the antibody response. So I like to tell people if you are on medication and it's safe to hold that during your vaccine period for a few weeks after your second dose, and then restart to allow your immune system to have the optimal chance to make anti-spike protein antibodies. So, but I have no data to back that up, Juan.
0: And this is something so, we'll have so, to look so, in your patients yeah, with methotrexate. So John,
2: it, it is very interesting. About 15% of our patients are on methotrexate. Um, and we actually use methotrexate as a concomitant med in some of our kids with biologics to prevent antibody formation against the biologic. So it is a consideration for us as well. For And, and, it, and it's a good point moving forward thinking whether in fact we need to hold it for a couple of weeks before and a couple of weeks afterwards.
0: Yeah, and then there was a question about vaccination in uh, in, in this population. We don't know yet because it really has been open for, for that particular group. Uh, all right. Let me. Uh, there are a couple more. We can't get through this. This is a really interesting. One uh, regarding school openings for John, with full attendance, students will be less than six feet in the class, six feet apart in the classroom. How do you feel about students to be less than six feet unmasked for thirty minutes for lunch? School cafeterias are allowed to be full capacity. Our restaurants also going to move to full capacity. So general comments about the school and distancing, John, and the and the post-vaccine era, I guess, would be.
1: I think it really depends on what our community spread is at the time. If if we're less than one percent positive, tests. And uh, we're at five new cases per 100,000. I'm feeling okay about that. I think if we have the community spread we have currently, I'm not feeling okay about that. So to me, we have to watch carefully what our community spread is. And I think we can move to a more open school model if community spread goes down. Now, the other wild card will be when and if we're allowed to begin pediatric immunizations. The data is being generated quite quickly. I saw an interview last night with the Pfizer... CEO and they're they're down to five H5 five now and getting that rolling. And he said it would be three months before they had data of 12, the 12 and up to 16. So I'm very optimistic by the time school starts, we may have a licensed vaccine for kids. So I think we're moving there. Watch community spread. And if the community spread is still high, I get nervous about that model.
0: Uh, Jeff, for you if, if a non-IBD patient uh yeah, who did have a positive PCR with mild symptoms, and now a few weeks later presents with abdominal pain and diarrhea and or vomiting. Uh, what testing do you recommend or what treatments do you suggest?
2: Uh, probably the, the best thing would be if you still have a level of concern to be get, get your standard screening lab, CBC, CRP, stead rate, and I would get a fecal lactoferrin or calprotectin, which is probably the best screen that we have, non-invasive screen, and if, if the CalProtect or lactoferrin is normal, it's highly unlikely there's any significant GI inflammation. If it's sort of borderline, I think that's a case we can discuss and sort of follow with you and then decide whether or not the kid needs to be seen.
0: Great. Thanks. Uh, John, there was a question here. I'm, I'm curious about the seven deaths in the placebo group of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I haven't looked at the raw data, but you know anything you
1: about? You, you can't, uh, they, I didn't see cause in the raw, raw data, but uh, they're, they're, uh, they're COVID-related. So I don't know if they died in the ICU, but those were COVID-related deaths in the placebo group. So they're, they're COVID. We would list them under our COVID mortality. So it was seven uh, died uh, from COVID in the placebo group and zero in the vaccine groups multinationally. It's a much more complicated data pool than the Moderna and Pfizer's because of of different countries, but that seemed pretty crisp. Uh, And so really severe ICU driven deaths from COVID were dramatically reduced by the single dose J&J vaccine uh, in the eighties. Not quite as good as the mRNA vaccines, but still pretty good.
0: Um, John, this one's for you also when, uh, I guess I I can help with that is with with kids, kids over the age of 16, with pre-existing conditions become eligible, will Connecticut Children's be a distribution site?
1: Um, We certainly would like to have the opportunity to um, immunize our high risk patients in the coming weeks. And I'm optimistic that we will be given that opportunity. Recognize there's not enough vaccine supply to immunize everyone we would like to. So we'll certainly try to immunize our highest risk kids first and then move from there. So I'm optimistic we will have that opportunity in the coming weeks. I do wanna, you know, I know it's nine o'clock. I really do wanna thank this audience uh, for for, uh, all of what you do out there. Um, The state uh, is working hard. All of you are part of the dramatic improvement in Connecticut. And it's been my privilege all these months uh, to be able to speak with you and to take your input now about what I should be talking about and keep it coming. Uh, but again, thank you for what you do out there. Uh, it, it's been my privilege to be able to be in front of you all these weeks. And it's my fervent hope that it won't be many more months that I'm still doing this. So
2: thank you.
0: We'll, we'll tap you for other infectious diseases, John. The infectious diseases are not going away. Uh, Jeff, some last comments before we close.
2: No, uh, again, I, to reiterate exactly what John just said. And, and please feel, you know, call us with any questions you have. We are here to partner with you
0: thank you jeff and thank you everyone for joining just a couple of reminders uh on tuesday march 2nd we'll be hosting the uh uh, paul dworkin lecture we give this every year and uh, paul will be uh, has invited uh, renee Boynton Jarrett, uh, and the title is very apropos for these times restoring dignity addressing structural racism childhood adversity and child health through reimagined community partnerships Uh, i think that would be a great grand rounds please join us on tuesday Next Friday, we'll have uh, John once again, and uh, he's going to be joined by one of our new pediatric cardiologists, Dr. Enos, James Enos, and I know you will be very interested in this topic about when do we do EKGs, echoes, and uh, cardiac MRIs. A very hot topic now for all of us. Uh, So again, uh, thank you for joining. Have a great weekend. Be safe, and we'll see you again on Tuesday. Bye-bye.